Father, it is a great privilege now to open the Bible and to consider your words of life. And we, we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts like Peter had in John chapter 6 when he said that to Jesus. Jesus said to those few men who had not left him, do you also want to go? Peter said, where else shall we go? You have the words of life. We are those that you have drawn to yourself, to faith in Jesus Christ. You have given us hearts that say that. Where else can we go? We've recognized, Lord, that there is only life in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would use your word this morning to stir up that impulse in us to believe there is only life in Jesus Christ that we would continue to cling to Him, to eschew all other claims to knowledge, all other, all other claims to life, all others who would say, this is the path and not Jesus, that you would use your word to confirm to us that the Bible is true, that the gospel is the way of life, that Jesus is the Savior, and that you have chosen Him and Him alone to bring many sons to glory. Please magnify Him in our minds and in our hearts in the coming minutes. We pray in His name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as you're you're finding your place there, let's all stand together and I'll read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You may be seated. What you thinking? It's something my wife and I ask each other maybe a dozen times a week. So what you thinking? And anytime she asks me that, I, I, I actually have to stop and figure it out. I know I'm, I'm always thinking something. I know I'm thinking something, but, but I don't often think about what I'm thinking about unless jarred from my thinking from the outside. That's why I'm thankful that the Bible frequently provides occasion for us 
to think about what we're thinking about. The Bible often does that by telling us to direct our thoughts to particular things. You know, unless jarred from the outside, our minds can continue on a course of thought that is not particularly helpful and at times absolutely detrimental to our faith. And here in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, the author tells us to think about something. Before we work our way through all of that and, and think about what he wants us to think about, I, I want to ask you a few questions. First of all, do you have anything going on right now for which you need to trust the Lord? For some of you, that's going to come to you immediately. You know, you know exactly what it is. Others of you may need to think for just a second, so I'm going to give you a second. Do you have anything going on right now for which you need to trust the Lord? Second question. What have you been thinking? Not just in the last few seconds or a few minutes, but in recent days, what has dominated your thoughts when you don't have to be thinking anything in particular? What has been dominating your thoughts? And I'll give you a second to to ponder that. That may not be immediately obvious, but think about that. One more question. Have you, within the last few days, intentionally directed your thoughts towards something for the sake of strengthening your faith? Another way of saying it would be, have you purposefully thought particular thoughts for the sake of trusting the Lord? I ask those questions because it seems that that's what the author wants us to do. He's he's not just wanting us to, to, to think something, but to think something so that we will trust the Lord. Direct our thoughts to a very particular place, which is the faithfulness of Jesus for the purpose of increased trust in Jesus. There will be very few of us for whom that's not immediately valuable, given that most of us in the room have something right now for which we need to trust the Lord. It's going to be immediately valuable. It's also going to be eternally valuable as we're reminded that the objective that the author has here is to help us cross the finish line of faith. That is not just to cross the finish line of this immediate trial, whatever it is, this thing that we need to trust the Lord for right now, but cross the finish line of this life into the next life, clinging to the Lord Jesus. What He is prescribing for us in this passage, meditating on the faithfulness of, of Christ unto trusting Jesus, that's valuable not, for what, not just for what we're facing right now, but for everything from this moment until we cross into Eternity, extremely valuable. So what we're going to see in this passage is is three steps to that place of trusting the Lord more deeply by thinking specific things about Him. The, the, the The first stop on that train is to contemplate the faithfulness of Jesus. Contemplate the faithfulness of Jesus. Look with me again at verse 1. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, 
Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So the, the author begins by tying what he's writing here and what he's about to write in the next few verses to what he's already written in chapters 1 and 2. He does that not only with that word, therefore, at the very beginning, but also with how he addresses the recipients. He calls them holy brothers. They are holy because they have been cleansed from their sin by the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ that he just mentioned a few verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 17. Christ satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of the people so that the author can right here call them holy. And he calls them holy so that they'll remember what he's just written in chapter 2. He also calls them brothers. They are brothers of the author because they are all brothers of Christ. And remember how that happened. Christ became a man being made like them in every respect so that he might suffer death as their representative and so bring many sons into the glory of the Father. And he says to these holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who share in a heavenly calling, you may remember that that, that idea is encapsulated in, in Psalm 8, or we should say Psalm 8 is encapsulated in those words. You who share in a heavenly calling. God, God ordained, as, as is shown in Psalm 8, God ordained that man should reign over all things. And yet the storyline of the Old Testament shows us that sin and death have prevented that from happening in this life. But what has the author of Hebrews taught us? He's taught us that Christ defeated sin and death, and He has ascended on high to fulfill that plan, God's plan for man, and to reign in heaven. So Jesus has already gone there as the pioneer of our salvation. He's gone there before us, for us. And so the author here is saying that we share in Jesus' heavenly calling. And so Jesus, just as Jesus has already gone to heaven, from where He now reigns, so also we will also go to heaven and reign with Him at the appropriate time. This is, this is great writing. If you want to know how to write well, just look at this. With just these first ten words of the ESV, the author has smuggled all the content of chapters 1 and 2 into chapter 3. And it's his way of saying, in light of everything I've already written, now consider or contemplate Jesus. This Jesus that I've been talking about for two chapters. And when he says consider Him, he means think this. Think deeply about Jesus. What in particular? Not just Jesus in general terms, but he wants us to think something very specific about Jesus. Consider Jesus who, like Moses, was faithful to him who appointed him. How was Jesus faithful? His faithfulness pertains directly to how the author describes him in verse 1. He calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. And we touched on this a bit last week. The author is using labels to describe Jesus, labels that were applied to Moses in the Old Testament and in some other ancient Jewish intertestamental literature. Moses was an apostle, that is, he was sent, he was a sent one, sent into Egypt to gather God's people. And Moses' message as a sent one was as much for the people of Israel as it was for Pharaoh. Moses was faithful to speak for God in that capacity. Moses also did the work of a priest in that he was tasked to to bring God's people into fellowship with him in the promised land. Similarly, Jesus was sent to earth to gather God's people. Jesus is a sent one. He's He's an apostle. 
And as an apostle, Jesus spoke for God. He also is, is, more than that, He is the Word of God. So Jesus, we should say, is the ultimate apostle. He's the ultimate sent one. John, in, in his gospel, he majors on this as he records Jesus repeatedly speaking of His own joyful obedience to the Father's sending Him to the earth. 22 times, 22 times in 21 chapters of John, Jesus refers to the Father as Him who sent me. I haven't quantified this, but that may be Jesus' favorite way to refer to the Father in the Gospel of John. Him who sent me. And and Jesus being sent implies about Him that He has been given a mission about which Jesus says in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And that mission was His priestly work of bringing God's people into eternal fellowship with God. Now, now we know from our time in in Leviticus that to do that, to, to bring people into fellowship with God, they offer sacrifices to God. Now, in Jesus, in Jesus' case, this required obedience that is unfathomable to us in that He laid down His own life as a sacrifice. You know, J- Jesus never sacrificed a bull. Jesus never sacrificed a calf or a lamb. Never sacrificed an animal. The first and only sacrifice that Jesus ever made was His own life. And about that, Jesus said in John 10, 18, this commandment I received from my Father. And so what we know from the Gospel of John is essentially that the Father said to the Son, go, and the Son said, done. And the Father said, lay down your life, and the Son said, done. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed Him. And and not only in these these two major aspects of coming down to earth and laying down His life, but but the Son was faithful to the Father in every act of obedience between those two things. Jesus said in John 8.29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And it is Jesus' perfect faithfulness that is the basis of our confidence in the gospel. Jesus' perfect faithfulness provides for our forgiveness and our reconciliation with God. When we fail, when we sin, it's Jesus' faithfulness that maintains our standing place in God's presence. When we vacillate, Christ is stalwart. This is precisely why we trust in Him. And no one else, not, not, not ourselves or, or anything that we can do, we trust in Christ because Christ was faithful to the one who appointed Him. That's the significance of this phrase of our confession. Consider Jesus Christ, the, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here, here a confession is, is not like a list of orthodox doctrines like, like we typically might use that, that noun like the, the, the 1689 London Confession or the Westminster Confession, but rather it's, it's much narrower than that, the way that the author here is using it. For him, this, like Paul, is, this, is, this is Christ and Him crucified. 
We might think of it as, as the content of our profession of faith. Our, our confession is that God sent Jesus to bring us to Himself by dying for our sins and rising from the dead. And the reason that we continue to trust Him is because of His perfect faithfulness to the One who appointed Him. So understand, when the author instructs us to, compl- to contemplate Jesus, it, it's not to kill time. This is, this is deeply purposeful. This is a letter, Hebrews is a letter intended to stir us up to persevere in faith until we cross the finish line of this life. And the primary way to do that is to magnify the object of that faith. Now, let's fast forward to the end of this section, the section being chapters 3 and 4. Let's fast forward to the end of this section, 4.14, and we'll see precisely where he's going with this. We'll see that, that it's not just, hey, Think about Jesus when you've got nothing else to think about. But he's going somewhere with this. Look at Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Here he's using that word confession in the same sense that he uses it back in in, early in chapter 3. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's secured the way for us. He's endured all the things that that I'm facing. And now He is poised. He is eager to help me endure those things until I join Him in heaven. And all this contemplation that the author of Hebrews is calling me to, is calling you to, it's intended to lead us to say, all the time, every day, I'm with Jesus. Because He he has got it covered. I'm with Him. There's no way in the world anybody's going to pry me away from Jesus. He's the only way that I can survive this world. Because He is my credentialing for glory. And He is my way to survive this world. I'm with Jesus. Him. So, and what should you and I do as we think about putting these things into practice? Well, we should do exactly what he has said here in these opening verses. Contemplate, think deeply about Christ's faithfulness to the one who appointed him. We should do that regularly. A primary mechanism for this is going to be our Bible reading. And we don't advocate Bible reading just for the rote exercise, but for this kind of thing. Contemplation of the content. And and as we're reading our Bible, we should be asking questions for the stirring up of our our own faith. What do I see here as as I'm reading Nehemiah? As I'm reading Jeremiah or Micah or, or Matthew or Thessalonians, what do I see here? to reveal new aspects of which I was formerly aware, or I'm sorry, formerly unaware, or old things which I've neglected regarding the faithfulness of Jesus. Or, how does, how does this move me to greater worship? How does this move me to confession? How does this move me to deeper faith? How does this move me to endurance? Thoughtful listening to or singing of rich worship music is also a great way to contemplate the faithfulness of Jesus to the one who appointed Him. Did you know, some of you may not be aware of this, but on a weekly basis, Noel Lamb 
takes the songs that we are going to sing on Sunday morning and she posts them on Facebook with a link to Spotify so that we can all be listening to them ahead of time. And did you further know that all of these songs have, have been planned to go with the theme of the sermon? So that these songs are, are driven toward preparing our hearts to hear the message that we're going to hear. I would suggest to you that, 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 that listening to those songs before we get here on Sunday morning are a great way to prepare our hearts for worship. I would further suggest that listening to those same songs, so you could get on Facebook this afternoon and pull that link down. You're, you, you may need to, to become a friend of Noel Lamb on Facebook. Pull, pull, those, pull those down. Listen to them for the rest of this week as a way of meditating on the content of this message. I guarantee you, as you listen to the songs that we've just sung, light bulbs are going to be going off about the things that I'm saying right now. Because all of the songs that we have sung were planned to go in line with everything that is being said in this sermon. And you will find yourself being stirred up to think once again about Him who was faithful to the One who appointed Him. Listening to good music, singing along with that music is a great way to contemplate Him was faithful to the one who appointed him. Another way, something that we advocate all the time, getting together with other believers and talking about these things. The best mechanism for that is reading the scriptures together and discussing it. If we don't have these kinds of mechanisms at work in our lives, these mechanisms for intentionally directing our minds toward the exaltation of Christ, you know what you know what happens automatically? We don't go forward in our exaltation of Christ, but we go backward. We, we ought to think of, of our faith like an organism. If you don't feed it for three months, what happens? Anybody got any plants in their house? You don't feed that plant for three months, it starts to wither. If you feed it all the time, it flourishes. A way to feed your faith is through constant, regular intentional feeding of it through meditation on the gospel. And here, he's advocating specifically meditation on the faithfulness of Christ to the one who called him. Consider also, not just this, this positive aspect of, of putting into place in your life these mechanisms for, for contemplation of Christ, but also on, on what we might think of as the negative side, be aware of the obstacles to contemplation. Don't forget your mind is not something that just goes to sleep whenever you're too busy to intentionally think about Christ. You're thinking about something all the time. And if you're not directing your thoughts toward things that build faith, you have natural enemies all around you and even on board in the form of indwelling sin that will do the opposite of stirring you up toward growing faith. Your own mind, left to itself and connected to a troubled heart, can be co-opted by enemies all around you to lead you away from faith. So, so don't think of your mind as a passive instrument, but rather use it for growing faith and fill it with thoughts of Christ. Also beware of those things that may be using up your mental bandwidth and you're not aware of it or you're not thinking about it. Using up your mental bandwidth, preventing you from doing this most important of mental activities. And, and when, when, when I think about things that just chew up our mental bandwidth, I'm thinking about things like scrolling, binging, whatever other 
participle you want to put in there, connected to our phones typically. And those, th- those things aren't inherently sinful. It's fine, it's fine to do those things. But we, we ought not let those things use up the best of our mental energy so that there is nothing left to devote to growing our faith through meditation on the faithfulness of Christ. Just beware. Beware of where your best mental energy is going. Contemplate the faithfulness of Christ. Second, contemplate the surpassing worthiness of Jesus. Contemplate the surpassing worthiness of Jesus. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now here, the comparison continues, or or if we wanted to be more accurate, we'd say a contrast is is beginning. It's important to note that the author does not highlight Moses' failure, but only commends Moses here. Now last week, I mentioned Moses' failure to bring the people into the land and that Jesus is better because Jesus actually gets you there. And and, and I actually, I was not as careful as I should have been in capturing the thrust of what the author is doing here. And and so I I will ask all of you collectively for your your forgiveness and my unfaithfulness to to have captured the, the author's intent here. The, the author is, is not in any way demeaning Moses in, in Moses' faithfulness, but rather he is, he is showing Moses to be absolutely faithful. The author does not magnify Jesus by noting any deficiency in Moses. Rather, he contrasts the different capacities of Jesus and Moses' faithfulness. So, so Jesus and Moses, they're both faithful, But he magnifies Jesus by showing that Jesus is faithful in a completely different capacity than Moses. And magnifying Jesus. That's that's what the author means by this idea that Jesus is worthy of more glory. And he's going to use the word honor synonymously in verse 3. That that, that Jesus is worthy of more glory, that he's worthy of more honor than Moses, means that, 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 that he deserves to be held in higher esteem. He deserves to be held higher in our affections, higher in our thoughts than Moses. And by implication, He deserves to be higher, held higher in our esteem, our affections, and our thoughts than anything else. Why? Because He's more worthy of that esteem than Moses or anything else. Now, this house metaphor likely is not random, but it's an allusion to a couple of Old Testament passages. If you're taking notes, you might write these down. 1 Samuel 2.35. 1 Samuel 2.35. 1 Chronicles 17.12. These are a couple of places in the Old Testament where, where the Lord talks about building for Himself a house or raising up someone to build Him a house. In 1 Samuel 2.35, the Lord talks about raising up for Himself a faithful high priest who will build him a house. And in 1 Chronicles 17.12, we've got that old f- famous 
Davidic promise where God says that he is going to, he's going to raise up a king who will build a house for him. So it's likely that the author of Hebrews is, is referring back to these old promises and saying, Jesus is the one that, 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 the, that the Father has been prophesying all the way back in, in Samuel, all the way back in Chronicles saying, one is going to come and build a house for me. That's Jesus building that house. And these original recipients, what was their temptation? In the midst of increasing pressure and persecution from the world, their temptation is to shrink back from Jesus and to revert to a more culturally acceptable Judaism where Moses is the preeminent prophet. And, and if they do that, they're going to be elevating Moses above Jesus. And so the author is saying, look, that makes no sense because Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, not because Jesus is faithful and Moses wasn't, but because Moses is the house and Jesus is the builder of the house. Verse 4 presents this self-evident principle, which is at the same time a a Christological statement. Every house is built by somebody. Going back to verse 3, he's driving at this idea that the builder of every house is, is worthy of more glory than the house itself. Every house is built by somebody. The builder of all things is God. Only the self-deceived would deny that. But in the context, the author is reminding us of multiple things that he's already taught us. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus created all things. Therefore, Jesus is worthy of more glory than all created things. And so the author is, is repeating things, themes that we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2. And here he's applying all of that to God's house. That is God's people in which Moses was a member and servant. And so all of that means Jesus is worthy of that much greater glory than Moses. In verse 5, he makes more explicit the contrast that he's making. And again, it's not that Jesus is faithful, Moses isn't. But rather, it's an issue of their respective capacities. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. In the house as a servant. What does it mean that Moses is in the house? Well, first of all, likely this is an allusion to Numbers 12.7 where the Lord says of Moses, He is faithful in all my house. Rightly understood, Moses' work in that capacity was picturing Christ. Moses is a type of the Lord Jesus, that, that Moses pointed forward to this superior sent one high priest. That's at least part of what the author means when, when he writes, to testify to what was to be spoken later. Moses also wrote the law, and in the law there are, there are multiple pictures of this coming Jesus. So, so Moses, in, in, in various ways, through his person and his writings, he's doing things to point to Jesus. But the, the point is, you don't go from Jesus back to Moses. You only go from Moses to Jesus. But Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Verse 6 says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And there's a difference in status between a servant and a son. The Son is greater. It's worthy of greater glory. wonder how, ma how many of you would rather be a janitor at Tesla or the heir of Tesla? Which, which would you rather be? Which one do you think is going to 
make out better when it comes time to retire. I mean, this is, this is an obvious comparison. And, and Paul picks up on this distinction in Galatians chapter 4. He makes hay of this very thing. It, it is better to be a son than to be a servant. You're worthy of more glory as a son than as a servant. So there's a discrepancy between the glory deserved by Christ compared to Moses simply because Jesus is a son over a servant, but also because Christ was a son over the house and not a servant in the house. Christ over, Moses in. See, Moses himself needed to be redeemed. Moses is in that house that needed a Savior. Moses needed to be saved. Christ is over that house as creator and redeemer. The people of God exist because of Jesus. Without a spotless sacrifice to cleanse the people from their sin, there is no people who can enter the presence of God. Christ is not a redeemed one, but a redeemer, and therefore He is worthy of highest honor. And the end goal of this comparison and contrast proposed by the author, again, He's not after mere cognitive recognition as if to say, hey, let's just recognize the difference between how much glory they each deserve. But, but rather, what he's driving at is give Christ the glory that He deserves. Look at the difference and, and elevate Christ in your, in your thoughts and in your affections, your esteem. Exalt Christ. Lift Him higher. He is faithful. Not that Moses wasn't faithful, but Jesus is faithful in a capacity that Moses never was, never could be. So as we think about putting these things into the context of our lives, to remember what what it means to glorify something, means to elevate it in our own esteem, and let's let's first of all recognize that there are going to be things in our lives that are worthy of honor. So the author of Hebrews is not denying that Moses is worthy of honor. He actually actually says that that, that when he says that Christ is worthy of greater glory, he's not denying that that Moses is worthy of glory. So we want to recognize there are are people and and things in our lives that are worthy of honor. The point is to keep them in their rightful place under Christ. And some of these things that are, that are going to be worthy of honor, that, that is worthy of some kind of esteem in our thoughts and affections, those are going to be our family members, our friends, our jobs in, in some degree. They're, they're going to be worthy of, of, of our attention and our thoughts. There are, there are figures in the evangelical world that we rightly esteem because They've been helpful to us. It's possible even to rightly esteem a hobby. It's not not bad to esteem these things. But none of these things can be objects of highest honor without being detrimental to our faith. There are are other things outside of that group that that, that could creep in as objects of high esteem which, which are not good ever. Things that are inherently sinful obviously would qualify as things that we should never highly esteem. Ever. Any worldview which challenges the Bible is something that we should never esteem in any way. So we we want to not only 
So we're thinking about what, what to do with these things that the author of Hebrews has put in front of us. We, we want not only to contemplate the faithfulness of Christ, but we want to engage in intentional comparison of these lesser things to Jesus. Asking ourselves, what is receiving a place of honor in my life? What, what, what are the things that, that hold a position of esteem in my affections and in my thoughts? Just identify those things and triage them in a sense. What, what are things that, that, that I should esteem? What are the things that I shouldn't esteem at all? And then compare and contrast them with the Lord Jesus. How are they alike? And, and most importantly, how, how are they different? How, how is Christ worthy of greater glory? That, that is a, a crucial and very helpful way of directing my thoughts. And as I do it regularly and prayerfully, it can lead to directing my affections, directing what I love. Just that exercise can be very helpful to putting Christ where He belongs on this, on this glory spectrum and putting those other things where they belong subordinated to Him on that glory spectrum. So we want to contemplate the faithfulness of Christ. We want to contemplate the surpassing worthiness of Jesus. And then third, hold fast your confident rejoicing in your hope in Jesus. Hold fast your confident rejoicing in your hope in Jesus. Look at the rest of verse 6. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So we're actually going to start at the end of the verse and, and work our way backwards. So, so we'll start with the word hope. And hope here is that thing to which we look forward with great confidence that we will receive it. It's that thing to which we look forward with great confidence that we will receive it. And what he has in mind is Christ's return when we will join Him in glory. If any of us have something else in mind for that slot, well, that's problem number one. So, so if, if there's something else that we have as our hope, first of all, that needs to be jettisoned, and Christ's return needs to be, be put firmly right there in that hope slot in our hearts and in our life. The thing, the, the thing that we are looking forward to with great confidence that we will receive it, needs to be for the Christian Christ's return when we will join Him in glory. Why should we be confident that we're going to receive that? Going back to, to these earlier verses in the passage, because of Christ's faithfulness. This is why He wanted us to contemplate Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness in the past means that we can rest in Christ's faithfulness in the future. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed Him to build a house. And, and, and His cross work is finished. Sin is paid for. Death is conquered. Yet, you may notice, as I've noticed today, our hope is not ultimately realized in that we are still here. We are not at home in glory with the Lord Jesus. Now, here is where Christ's faithfulness in the past helps us with this hope thing. 
if Jesus was faithful in going where the Father sent Him, if He was faithful in all His incarnation, if He was faithful as a, as a high priest in laying down His life and securing our salvation, what are the odds that out of nowhere the Son is going to be unfaithful in completing this task of bringing many sons to glory by not returning to get his brothers and sisters, especially when the hard part is finished. The hard part is finished. The cross, all, all that is done. What are the odds that, that out of nowhere he's just going to stay in glory and not come and get us? Zero. There, there's no chance. And that's why the author has said to us, think deeply about Jesus Christ, the author and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to the one who appointed him. That's the foundation of our hope. All right? Now back up a little bit further to the word boasting. Boasting is, is something like verbal rejoicing. We ought not think of it as bragging, but more like just outwardly to, to, to anybody that will listen. I can't wait for the fulfillment of what I know is going to happen, which is Christ's return and my joining Him in glory. That's boasting. Boasting in our hope. Just outward rejoicing in this thing that I know is going to happen. And again, the fuel for that is our, our, our knowledge of faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ, or this contemplation in His faithfulness. Back up a little bit further in the text, and we see, we see the word confidence. And here, confidence is not confidence in the same sense that I was, that I was using the word a moment ago. But, but here, in secular Greek, this, this, this word for confidence was the word used to describe this kind of open and frank nature that, that citizens had within the Greek state. So a, a Greek citizen could have, could have a very bold relationship with, with Greek officials. They could approach a Greek official and, and very openly talk with them. In this context, when this word is used of believers, it refers to this Humble boldness with which we can approach God given the finished work of Christ. It's, it's that same boldness that, that the author calls us to in chapter 4, verses, verses 14 through 16. Let us boldly approach the throne of grace. That's what he's talking about when he says this word confidence here. Confidence and boldness in our hope, backing up a little bit further, hold fast. Hold fast, that's pretty simple. We're just clinging to all of that. We're clinging to our confidence, clinging to this boldness in our hope, this outward rejoicing. Now, we back up a little bit further, and he's staying with this house metaphor. We are his house if we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are his people if indeed we do these things. And so here again, we're at one of these passages where the author highlights the significance of faithful endurance. And, and this is the great objective of Hebrews, to spur the reader on to perseverance in trusting Christ. And that's exactly what we mean when we use these words, perseverance and endurance. We're using those two words synonymously, perseverance, endurance, we're using them synonymously to simply mean continuing to trust in Jesus. And that idea of, of encouraging other believers or teaching other believers to continue to trust Jesus, that should be the least controversial exhortation ever taught in a church. 
There should be no controversy over this. Because if we don't think that a person must continue trusting in Christ in order to enter eternal life, we're saying you can be saved and not believe in Jesus. To, to object to the concept of endurance is to say you can deny Christ on the last day and still enter glory. That, that's a problem. And so we, we, we ought to say amen when we, when we find these, these sentences like this. Now, now, now some of us may be troubled by one word in, in this verse. Just one word. And it's the smallest one. If. We're troubled by the word if. We are His people if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so we see that tiny little word and we think, does this mean that I'm not part of His house now? Am I not, am I not a Christian until I cross the finish line? Well, in seeking to understand these things, it may be helpful to note what the author is trying to do and what he is not trying to do with this book. And in understanding that, we need to be very careful not to make our objective his objective because you'll, you'll end up in, with all kinds of interpretive problems if you do that. So, what is he trying to do? What is he not trying to do? The author is not trying to answer that temporal question. When were you saved? When weren't you saved? Or how do you know? He is not teaching about that. He is not teaching about assurance. He has a different objective. And it's very focused. It's, it's, it's like razor focused. Get these folks to cross the finish line. That's it. That's, that's his only objective. And so he's simply saying just this. And we can't add to it. We can't take away from it. He is just saying, you're his house if you endure to the end. You're his house if you endure to the end. And, and, and the entire book is an implied exhortation, endure to the end. Endure to the end. You're His house if you endure to the end, so endure to the end. Keep believing. That's the idea behind every conditional statement in Hebrews. If you endure to the end, if you persevere, you belong to, to God's house, so persevere, persevere, persevere. And that's why, that is why He puts these rich, Rich Christological banners in front of us from the beginning to the end. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus from the beginning to the end so as to stir everyone up to faith, so as to push them to trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus to get them to cross the finish line. It's crucial not to isolate these exhortations from the rest of the passage or the rest of the book. The whole point of contemplating Christ's faithfulness is to be reminded it's not my faithfulness that saves me. It's not Moses' faithfulness that saves me. It's not my wife's. It's not this. It's not that. It's Christ alone. And I have all the reason in the world to hold fast my confidence and boasting in my hope because of Jesus' faithfulness. And so, the continued direction of my thoughts, and by that word I mean my conscious, willful directing of my own thoughts, is toward Christ as the appropriate object of my hope. And so the way he's got this set up is, 
is I'm first thinking Christ was faithful. Christ is worthy of highest glory. So I will trust in Christ. Christ is faithful. Christ is worthy of highest glory. So I will trust in Christ. And I'm going to hammer that last one over and over and over. And and when I get tired of that, I'm going to go back here. Christ was faithful. Christ is worthy of highest glory. So I will trust in Christ. That's what he's trying to get us to do. The author is encouraging us to direct our minds, push our minds toward a particular train of thought with the end goal of continuing in belief in this magnificent, faithful, all-sufficient Jesus. So what are you thinking? In times of tested faith, and in every time in between, don't be in the habit of letting your mind go wherever it will. But do, do, do what's prescribed here. And do, do what's prescribed in Philippians 4. And, and, and elsewhere in the Scriptures where, where we are told, grab your brain and direct it toward this particular thing. Direct your thoughts to the faithfulness of Christ and His surpassing worthiness unto your holding fast to your confidence and boasting in your hope in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, we have we've discussed, considered various things that we might do in response to, to this message. I pray that in, in the coming moments as we as we share a moment of reflection, that, that your Holy Spirit would be intensely active in this room, in each of our minds and hearts, moving us in particular directions specifically helpful to each one of us. There may be some of us who have, who have particular obstacles that are in the way of meaningful contemplation. Some of us who need to, need to eliminate those obstacles as a result of this message. Others who, who have no meaningful interaction with other believers who need to, to be intentional about making relationships for the, the purpose of contemplating Christ. pray that that, that that would be impressed upon the appropriate people. Others need very specific direction in other ways. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would work in these moments, impressing upon us what you would have us to do, to be faithful to you, to continue to believe in Christ, that ultimately we would cross the finish line of faith and spend eternity with you. We are so thankful, Lord, for your word and its clarity. And we pray, Lord, that you would have your way. We ask in Jesus' name.